Um, well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Christmas week at TCC. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. Um, so uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Psalm chapter 68. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 68 today. Uh, as you know, we've been going through this Praying Through the Psalms series. Um, so this is the psalm we'll be spending some time in today, just as a heads up. Uh, it's a longer psalm, and uh, we're only going to be spending time in parts of it because uh, people don't want to be here forever, and I respect that about you. So Psalm 68 is where we're going to be today. And to open up, we're going to go through verses 1 through 10, then we're going to jump down to verse 15. We're going to go through 20, and then we're going to end with verses 32 through 35. So join me in Psalm 68. Let's read God's word together. Chapter 68, verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished, your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And drop on down to verse 14 with me. O mountain of God, O mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for this abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious that the Lord may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Then skip over to verse 32, if you could. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is the God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. God, blessed be your holy name. As we read this psalm, we just see even King David, who is the author, blessing you. 
a mighty king, a leader of an army, your chosen person, bowing the knee to the king. And Lord, as we are in this season of waiting for Advent, of waiting for your coming, help us to bend the knee. To say God is Lord and the Lord is God. We wait for you, God. We pray that you would speak now. Let your Holy Spirit go forth. Receive these words, send out these words, and may we bless you. May your word go forth in power that you've promised it. Let it not return void. May we honor you and love you this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the eighth episode of season four of The Office, uh, the main character of the show, Michael Scott, is having financial troubles and troubles with debt. And um, <clears throat> many of you know where this is going already, and I'm sorry. But um, he's having trouble with debt, and word starts to get out around the office, and people start conversing about it. And so he's in the break room, and some other people in the break room. And he's there, and one of the characters, his name is Creed, says, hey, boss, I heard you're having mo money troubles. Um, and he says, what you should do is you should file for bankruptcy. And Michael's like, no, because that doesn't make any sense. If you're playing Monopoly and you file for bankruptcy, you lose. Why would you do that? He's like, no, those are Monopoly rules. You have to play by real life rules. When you file for bankruptcy, it's a clean slate. It's nature's do-over. This is bad advice, by the way, if you're not familiar. Just, I felt like I needed to do that for you. Um, anyways, he is convinced. He's completely convinced, yes, that is the way forward. That's the way out of my problem. So he says, okay, I need to declare bankruptcy. So he goes out into the office area, big open office area. He looks over his people, and he says in his loudest, proudest voice, I declare bankruptcy. And that's, like, that's it. It got to a commercial. And it comes back with him, and it's him sitting at his desk, and he has his scissors, and he's cutting up his credit cards. And one of the well-meaning accountants, Oscar, comes in. He's like, hey, uh, I just think you should know that um, you can't just say bankruptcy and expect your problems to go away. And he looks at Oscar very and very confidently and says, I didn't say it, I declared it. Um, it's one of the, like, the, the more endearing moments of that show. Uh, it's really, really funny, and obviously what makes it so funny is this kind of play on the word declare, right? Like, declaring bankruptcy is obviously like more of a legal move, but when we think of the word declare, we, you know, I don't know about you guys, um, I grew up watching like the old cartoons, so like Foghorn Leghorn, it's like, I declare. Um, you know, there's this, this sense of like declaring is this, this, this statement of truth that kind of goes forth from us outwards. Uh, it's an authoritative statement, right? Declaring is like a bold expression of truth. So like, for example, at weddings, like uh, the couple declares their love and their commitment to one another. It's this promise of truth that is coming uh, from between the couple out to the witnesses. Um, in a court of law, or not a court of law, I'm sorry, um, but, uh, you know, when officials or elected officials or something are getting sworn into their things, they are declaring that they will um, show fidelity to their position and to the laws that they are um, agreeing to uphold. Or, um, you know, uh, for example, like when we celebrate baptism here at TCC, it is the, we, we declare that we are putting our faith in Christ. He is who um, we are going after. So we are declaring that there's this faith that we are having. It's, it's a sense of truth going out from us. So this concept of declaration as an expression of truth is, is everywhere, right? It's throughout culture, institutions, churches, 
Um, but this is not like, you know, it's not an American thing necessarily. Like, declarations have been around for a very long time. I mean, we, we kind of, as Americans, we have our Declaration of Independence, but declarations have been around for a very, very long time. And so declarations have been around, and we see it throughout the Scripture as an authoritative way of God's Word. And that's, you know, that's not surprising to us. We know that God's Word is truth. So we should expect it to be declared, right? Uh, even this event of preaching is declaring the Word of God, is declaring God's truth, is proclaiming God's truth, because it is a statement, it is going out as authoritatively God's Word. So as we look at Psalm 68, we are seeing that this is a psalm that is declared. Now, this, the background on this um, psalm is, is pretty interesting. Um, this is a 35-verse declaration of the awesome majesty of the Ancient of Days, the, the, the Holy One, Yahweh, the great I Am, God Almighty. And so as we're going through this series at TCC of praying the Psalms, this is a particularly interesting psalm because we here at TCC believe in the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. And so while we would acknowledge that King David penned these words with his hand, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is a psalm of praise by God, to God, for God. So as we think about how to pray this particular psalm, this is a psalm of praying praise by God, to God, for God. So just as a bit of a background, the scriptures do say that King David is the writer, and we don't have any evidence that would indicate otherwise. Um, This is a celebratory psalm. So this is a type of psalm that David would have sung as the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets that the Ten Commandments are written on. They are being carried back. The Ark is being carried back from a victorious battle towards Jerusalem. It's like a victory. He is declaring, we did the thing. God did the, the victory, and we are declaring his victory over all people. Actually, this psalm is particularly interesting. It harkens back to two other moments of victory earlier in Israel's history, uh, one of them being when Moses shares some of these exact same words as they are leaving Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments. You think about it, they just came out of Egypt. They have, you know, God has conquered the Egyptians, Israel's enemy. They have received God's commandments, and they are going processionally towards God's place for his people. So there's this moment of victory that Moses is exclaiming some of these words. It's also reflective of a victory song sung by Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5. Um, if you want to kind of compare and contrast, you can. But that is a, it's a psalm sung. They use some of the words that Deborah and Barak sang in their victory over a different army that was trying to destroy the nation of Israel. Um, one author says that the feelings of this psalm that it gives off is a feeling that you might have as the general of an army is kind of giving good news of victory towards his people. So that's what we're working with as we work here. A little interesting piece of background, too, on this particular psalm is it's, um, it was adopted as a celebratory psalm that was sung, sung during the holiday of Shavuot, uh, also known as the Feast of Weeks, if you've heard of that before. Um, so it's a celebration. If you're not familiar, uh, the Feast of Weeks takes place 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, which is a separate feast that takes place around the time of Passover and requires all able-bodied Jewish men to return to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices at the temple. You are much likely more familiar with the English name for Shavuot, which is called Pentecost. 
It's a celebration of the harvest and is a celebration of the revelation of God to his people through the giving of law. This particular psalm has nine stanzas and it's to be sung. We're only going to touch on a few of them. Like I said, there's a lot to unpack here. We unfortunately just don't have the time for it, but it's a wonderful psalm. Uh, really encourage you guys this week to spend some extra time with it. Um, and since we've been in the Praying the Psalm series, we're gonna, I want to talk about one thing real quick. When I was first introduced to Jesus and I was trying to figure out how to pray, um, <clears throat> I was introduced to this method of praying called ACTS, A-C-T-S, and it stands for Adoration, Confession, there you go, Thanksgiving, Supplication. If you ever don't know how to get through your prayer time or you don't know what to pray, this is a really helpful category. I still think in these categories today, sometimes my prayer does all four, sometimes it's one of the four, and sometimes it's a weird conglomeration. It doesn't have to go in that order. Anyways, we want to specifically focus this, this whole psalm, Psalm 68, all 35 verses, all fit into that letter A category. This is all a psalm of adoration. This is just nonstop praise of God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. This psalm is a song of God's goodness, greatness, power, glory, mercy, so much more. And we know and we see in this psalm that God is glorified and lifted up on the praises of his people. He is glorified and lifted up on the praises of his people. And this psalm offers for us three grounds on which we can praise God through prayer. So we're going to look at these three grounds on which we can praise God through prayer. Ground number one, we praise God because he is worthy of praise. We praise God because he is worthy of praise. We're going to take a quick stop from the Bible so I can tell you how awesome my wife is. Hi, honey. <laughs> On an average day, this woman corrals three children nonstop all day long. Earlier this year, we invited some friends into our home throughout the week so they could do their virtual learning and we could ease the burden on their parents. So she was responsible for five children at once, which I know for some of you is like, so? It's a big deal in my mind. Um, she homeschools our two oldest kids, so she's teaching several different su subjects to two different grades at the same time. She is unbelievably gifted at organizing and planning our home, including shopping needs, household needs, cooking and preparing meals, cleaning laundry, and has a natural gift kind of just for home projects and updates that she does for fun. She is great about her spending and tracking and being financially responsible. She plans fun activities for our family to do together and goes the extra mile to make things fun and special for the kids. She thinks about neighbors and how to love and care for them. She spends time investing in our marriage and relationship. She is by far the best friend I will ever have. She is often up late at night, sometimes into the early hours of morning the next day, planning school, sewing clothes, working on any number of things to love on people in really different ways. And just to top it all off, she is super pretty. And so most mornings, I'm the one who gets up with our children. Seems fair to me. And so, like, when you get up with kids, it's not, I mean, if you've ever experienced young kids waking you up early in the morning, it's not always, like, the most fun thing in the whole world. Um but I do it joyfully. Why? Because when you look at the whole scope of who Sarah is as a person, as a woman, and everything that she's about and everything she does, I'm like, she deserves to sleep in for an extra hour, right? Like, absolutely deserves that extra hour of rest because of everything else she does throughout the day. And it's like, like 
Now that you've heard that, do we all agree that Sarah deserves her extra hour of sleep in the morning? Send her text messages to tell her how she's awesome and she deserves sleep. When we talk about someone or something that deserves this kind of response, we're making a judgment call, right? So like in this story of Sarah, I'm making a judgment call that because you are this awesome, you deserve this. But everything has a judgment call in it, right? Like even court cases, the, the judge makes a judgment call on whether the accused is guilty or not. Even a kid, little kid, who yells, that's not fair in the midst of like playing, that's a judgment call. We're always putting a sense of judgment or morality on an external situation. And we make these judgment calls because we are human beings dealing with other human beings. So we all have this kind of shared vision and value of what is moral, right, and fair. We are all creatures. We are all created by God in his image for his glory, and we have this shared experience that we're all looking at. God is not like us. We do not put our judgments on God. Isaiah chapter 55 and Romans chapter 9 are super, super clear in their indication that while we do reflect God's image, his thoughts and his ways are very different from ours. We are in no position to speak back to God. He is the perfect, sovereign Lord who does all things according to his will, not our will. And because of this overwhelming superiority of God, our response is to bow in humble worship of him, and we offer to him our prayers of praise, and we say to God, you deserve this. It's the least I can do to praise God. You are the only one worthy of praise, and we offer you praise through prayer. John MacArthur has this super helpful quote about prayer. He says, Prayer is not an attempt to get God to agree with you or provide for your selfish desires, but that it is both an affirmation of his sovereignty, righteousness, and majesty, and an exercise to conform your desires and purposes to his will and glory. Like I was saying, this psalm, uh, the very first verse is almost a direct quote from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. The people of Israel have received the commandments from Mount Sinai, and they are on their way to the promised land, and God is going with them. Just so you know, chapter 10, verse 35 of Numbers says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. This is a people without a home. They just fled from captivity in Egypt. They've been hanging out at the bottom of a mountain, and they're going to a promised land full of paganism and the enemies of God. And the call that Moses puts out that David repeats a hundred or hundreds of years later is that God is so magnificent and strong that his enemies scatter. Verse 2 continues, As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. I'm sure many of you have been lighting candles this season for Advent or for any number of reasons. We're a big candle family. I'm learning that I'm allergic to all kinds of different candles because... uh, I'm a ginger at heart, so I'm just allergic to the world sometimes. Um, But we've been doing the Advent candles that don't have smell, and it's been uh, acceptable. Um, Anyways, so I've had some... uh, 
try not to get too excited, but I've had some firsthand experience of what happens when wax melts. Um, calm your excitement. But, sorry. Um, if you've ever lit a candle, you know it doesn't go well for the wax. Right? Fire doesn't really worry about wax, and wax doesn't hold up too well to fire. We've seen that. We know what happens when fire goes up against wax. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, calls God a consuming fire. In my home, we have a controlled little flame. God is a consuming fire. This is the metaphor that God uses to, he chooses to use when describing himself against his enemies. Wax against a consuming fire. According to the worldwide interwebs, <clears throat> paraffin wax melts at approximately 99 degrees Fahrenheit. That means if you have a bad fever, you are personally able to melt paraffin wax. A hot day in North Carolina could really do some damage to paraffin wax. And God is a consuming fire. He's not worried about enemies. It's not even, a, it's like barely on his radar that he has to fight them. God shows up even uh, several chapters earlier in the, the Exodus story as fire to protect his people. If enemies are waxed against the consuming fire that is our God, who's going to stop him? Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you are in Christ, if you belong to him, you have on your side an unstoppable, almighty, powerful creator God who is for you, and anything in this world that stands against you or him is wax. Enemies of the faith, injustice, persecution, attacks of the devil, sickness, even death is all a momentary wax. They are real they are worth paying attention to, but they hold no eternal value against the consuming fire that is our God. If you do not follow Christ, if you have not put your faith into the saving work that God has done for you, if you have not confessed and repented of sin, acknowledging yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, turning from sin and turning to the perfect life, perfect birth and life of Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection and ascension, I implore you to consider this one fact. You are the wax. Things might be fine for you in this life right now. It might be going great today. You might have prospects for a bright future. You, may have, you might disagree with certain things that you think Christianity teaches. It may even seem to you that when you do things, they go really well for you, and you don't have to do things anyone else's way. But on the day that you die, rest assured that day will come, you will stand before an all-powerful God who will demand payment of your sins. And if you cannot claim the saving blood of Christ, you will melt before God as wax before a consuming fire. So I beg everyone, flee from the wrath to come. Trust in Christ and make today the day of salvation. The psalm goes on to explain how God's people feel about their glorious God. We exult, we rejoice 
And maybe it's just because of Christmas when I was reading this, but it reminded me of the shepherds who, upon hearing the news of Christ's birth in Matthew chapter 2, they, re- they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Exceedingly great. It's like when he's writing this, he's like, joy with some joy on top of it, with like a little joy garnish on, on top of that. You know, it's just like, can't tell you how joyful we are here. Because we have this perfect, unstoppable God. He is untouchable and he is deserving of praise. So we rejoice to give him our praise freely. And so we do, as verse 4 says, we sing to God. We sing praises to his name. He is worthy. He is deserving. He is our creator. God is different from us and we praise him, right? His people are trudging across the desert but God is riding on the wind. We toil in this fallen world, but God is getting ready to make all things new. God is powerful. He's glorious. He is trustworthy. He is true. He is kind. He is good. He is God. He is deserving of our praise. Round number two. We praise God because he is worthy of praise Sorry, ground ground number two, we praise him because he cares for his people. We praise God because he cares for his people. I know there are a lot of different opinions on COVID and how our country, world, state, local governments are all handling it, so I don't want to touch on that, but I think we can all agree that doctors and medical workers are pretty fantastic people, right? But they are wonderful additions to our society, and we, we are thankful. It's my view, personally, I don't speak for anyone but myself, but it's my view that we are indebted to them deeply for their work and sacrifice this year and really every year. <clears throat> I mean, you've probably seen some of these viral videos that have gone around with, like, nurses going out to work and the people in their apartment complexes, like, on the porch, like, giving them a standing ovation. I love that stuff. Um, and I think it's, 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 a, it's just a truly wonderful thing. So I'm not trying to be political, and I hope it doesn't come off that way, but you, if you're a medical person during this time, just thank you. Um, we're grateful for you. And I, I hope that this appreciation our society generally offers towards medical workers during this pandemic, um, I hope it can point us to understand the praise we should offer to God because he similarly cares for people. Look at verse 5 with me, if you would says, Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. We see God here caring for the weakest and the most vulnerable. James repeats this in his own book, stating that true religion is the care for widows and orphans. And also, chapter 61 of Isaiah is quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 4 when he says that he has come to set the captives free. God has a plan for his people, and his care is for the weak, the destitute, the outcast, the helpless, the needy. God is not interested in setting up some kind of program to help the weak pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. God's plan is to gather the weakest to themselves and then give himself to them. Look at verse 7. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, 
Reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. It ties back, but we, this is, we just see God in his might here. A flashback, this is, to the scene at Mount Sinai, when the earth shook, lightning flashed, thunder rolled, and the people feared when God spoke to Moses. And in this passage, we just see God providing for his people. He gave them direction at Sinai by giving them his revealed law, his will for their lives. In their land, he gives them abundant rain. In their wandering, he gives them a dwelling place. In their need, he gives his goodness. And in this final week of the Advent season, we remember how when we were lost and wayward, lost in our own sin, lost in our own mess, without hope for a future or a chance to be reconciled with God, God gives us himself. And he cares deeply for his people. Uh, 2020, can we agree, has probably been a strange year, if we can just use that word. Like, no matter where you feel about things, we can all agree this, weird was, this year was a little bit different from other ones. Um, I was just, on the, when I was driving here, I was like, man, remember in 2018 when people were saying it was a bad year because like a bunch of celebrities died? We had no idea. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my full-time job, we, my work, we had a, uh, a toast on Friday when our leaders, you know, they lifted their glasses and we said an emphatic goodbye to 2020. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way. Um, but can we all agree also that our God was with us at the beginning of this year when everything was normal? He was with us when lockdowns started to happen. He was with us when civil unrest grew. God was there in Minneapolis. God was there every day leading up to November 3rd. God was there on election day, and he's been with us every day since. God is gladly overseeing us and caring for us moment by moment. Life is, it's hard. I'm not here to argue with you about that. And for a lot of people, this year was harder than most. But what a joy it is to know that our great God has been with us every day of 2020. And that he is waiting for us every moment that is still yet to come. He waits and he walks for, he waits for us and he walks with us in a sense of deep, deep care. He invites us to come to him and he asks us to offer to him our burdens and he will give us in exchange for it rest. He continues to walk through the deserts of life with us. There will doubtlessly be trials, tribulations, pain, and suffering, but we take heart in our Savior's words because he has overcome this world. The Apostle Peter in his first letter explains that God longs to receive our anxieties. Why? Like, think about yourself a little bit. Like, what causes you to have anxiety? I don't know if it's money or relationships or school or your family or disease, or sickness, like whatever. Just like think about the daily things that you get anxious about. Now think about how everyone in this room is also dealing with something similar. Not the exact same, but we're all dealing with something like that. And our God says, give it to me. Why? Why would he say, give me all of those? Peter's answer, because he cares for you. Your God cares for you. Behold the kindness of God. It isn't because of your deep affections 
for him. It isn't because we're the faithful ones. It's not because we're good at Christianity, we're good at reading our Bible, sharing the gospel, or advocating for justice, or evangelizing, or anything else. God wants those things specifically from us because he cares for us. I want us all just to take 10 seconds, even people at home. I know it's probably crazy in a few homes right now, and that's fine. But in your own hearts, in your own minds, and and just in this moment, I want you to close your eyes and think, my God cares for me. Go. He cares for you. Without prompting, without reminder, without a drudging responsibility, God cares for you. And for that, we praise him. Ground number three. We praise him because he is the one who saves. We praise him because he is the one who saves. Jump with me, if you would, to verse 15. This is a weird one, so stick with me. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. Yeah, we're speaking to mountains now. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. This is kind of a weird passage. I wasn't sure what to do with it when I first read it. So I went to a commentary, and the commentary really assuaged my fears by saying this might be the hardest psalm in the entire book. So, yeah, (laughs) we're all in this together. Okay, Um, but one commentator, a guy named Derek Kidner, explains uh, why I think a good starting place is that when he's talking about the Bashan region, he's talking about maybe one of two mountains, potentially a mount called Jabal Druze, or possibly Mount Hermon. Uh, both are larger than Mount Sinai. Uh, Jabal Druze is like physically not as tall, but it's a powerful volcano, uh, whereas Mount Hermon is like uh, closer to 10,000 feet, whereas Sinai is like seven. Not that Sinai is a small mountain, but Hermon is clearly like dominating the landscape where it is. So it's, Sinai is clearly like not the most interesting or powerful or scary mountain in the area. So when we consider the dwelling places of God, I don't know about you, my mind goes to this idea that Isaiah 57 says, it calls it the high and the lofty places. Um, And yet Sinai is the place that God chose to dwell and meet with Moses, not not the Mount Hermon or not the volcano where God could show off his power by making something erupt. He just picks this, you know, medium-ish mountain. So the question arises, what makes Sinai so wonderful compared to these tall, powerful mountains like Drapel Druze or, or, or Hermon? Like, why, why Sinai? What makes Sinai special? What makes Sinai special is that God chose it. And as we talked about, we don't question the will of God. It's God's will. So David calls out this mountain as though it were jealous, but really the words here should cut to our own hearts. Right? He's calling this mountain out for being jealous. But think about your own lies, what, you're all, what we are dealing with. He, you know, like we ask ourselves, God, why did you choose that guy to get the promotion? Or why did you choose her for that role? Or why don't 
I had that many friends or that car or had or that kind of money. Why aren't my kids like those kids? How come my home doesn't look like their home? Why isn't my life like their life? God will do whatever God will do. We don't always have answers, and sometimes it seems more often than not the answers that we do get are not the answers that we're looking for. A lot of what will happen in life doesn't always make sense, but it seems that many times God's plans <clears throat> excuse me, do not make sense as far as we compare it to the way of this world. Kidner goes on and explains that Sinai, quote, was God's choice, and it is the kind of paradox God delights in, like the choice of David to himself of little Bethlehem, indeed, of the things that are not, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight. We don't need to look any further than the incarnation, the birth of God as man, in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to confirm Kidner's words. I'm going to try to get through this next part without crying, but if I do, um, deal with it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, I want to give you a quick passage from Augustine. Who, who kind of nails the paradox of the Christian experience. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the, found, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. We do not apply our wisdom to the motives of God. It is foolish. It is short-sighted. In fact, if we put our own wisdom in place of God's, we probably would undo our own salvation but praise God that he is unlike us and that his unlikeness to us, he saves us. God has called on us not to be jealous of the works of his hand, but rather to accept the fact that he will do as he does. Verse 18 of this psalm is quoted by Paul thousands of years later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul ultimately uses this passage to summarize the work that Christ has done for us. And just as David pronounced God's victory, excuse me, in his ascension up the holy mountain. So Paul is saying that Christ has declared his own victory in his ascension to heaven. Paul interprets this idea that gifts, this, this gifts idea that God receives gifts of men is actually truly recognized in God giving gifts, namely the Holy Spirit. If you think about earlier, this is the exact psalm that Jewish men would be praising God with. They would say that God, you, we give gifts to you because you are worthy. And God says, no. I give gifts to you as we are worthy. And as they are singing it outside, God sends down the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is happening at the exact same time. People are saying this exact psalm in the temple, and the Holy Spirit comes down to dwell with men. God will do what he will do. And God, what, what God is planning to do, if we really want to know what God wants to do, he wants to save. That's what God is really wanting to do. God wants to save. <clears throat> there are two verses that really come to my mind when I think about God's desire to see people saved. The first one is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, when God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn 
and live. That's the call on every single person who has ever lived and walked this earth. Do not delight in your death. Turn and live. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is that his creation would know him and love him and praise him. And that's what we do as his people. We can know and do God's will when we pray our praises to God. Verse 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. He cares for you, daily bearing you up. He is your salvation, your safe place, your keeper, your sanctuary. He alone is the God who saves, who delivers you from death. We live in a dark, dark world. Amen? And remember that you and I both walked in the way of the world. And uh, by no work of our own, God brought brought us out of death and into his glorious light. God did what he wanted to do. And we praise him because he is the God that saved us. He is the God of our salvation. And so what do we do? We praise God. We share our praises with others so that others will praise God. We praise God for saving us. And when we share that saving praise with others and others believe, God gets the glory. And so we praise God for being the God who saves. So like I said, this is a a longer psalm. It's a good psalm, and I really encourage you to spend some more time this week with it. Um, Grab a commentary, grab a study Bible if you have access to them. There are resources out there. if you're, if you're curious, I can, I can tell you about some that I use that I found helpful. Um, spend some time this week with this, this verse. But there's a, a hymn that I think sums it up really well. Because when we think about the praises of our God, sometimes you even think, where do we start? You might feel like that, and I want you to know that uh, you're not the first person to feel that way. There's a, there's a hymn called The Love of God, and it puts it like this. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God's grace and mercy toward us, his people, is never ending. He never stops being good to us. My four-year-old brought up an interesting topic during this Christmas season as we're doing our Devo stuff. And, you know, she'll stand up and she'll say, Was Jesus born to die? Pretty insightful for four years old. But that is why Christ came for us, that he would die and in doing so bring many to himself to the praise of his glory. The way that this psalm ends is with the Ark of the Covenant being triumphantly uh, brought into the city of Jerusalem through the gates and reestablished in the temple as the throne of God with a resounding victory chorus. So as we uh, conclude, as we reflect on God's triumph over sin in the sending of Christ to save his people and conquer sin and death, I want to invite you all to stand up with me, if you are able. Uh, I want to read verses 32 through 35 together uh, that we can all claim this victory and triumph that God has given us together. 
if you're able, if not, that's cool too, because it does say able-bodied, but um, if you are able, go ahead and join us. If you're at home, it'd be super fun for you to join us too. I know couches are comfy, but uh, the word of God is even comfier. Psalm 68, verse 32, let's sing it, or let's say it together. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the Holy One. You are the one magnificent, perfect in power, pure, holy, good. God, how wonderful it is that we can celebrate your coming to save your children. God, as we go this week, uh, as we do our shopping, as we do our planning and gathering and our baking and our movie watching, may it all be to the praise of his glory. May we not even momentarily think of not singing and praying your praises. So let us go. Let us speak and let us praise you. Let us pray your praises on these grounds, that you are worthy of praise, that you are the Holy One, that you are the Saving One, and that you care for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.